0: political division is at one of the highest points it's been in my lifetime. But can we push back and come together as a country? Today, that's what we're going to be diving into at The Conversation for Our Generation, where I have on a great guest today. His name is Ross Binnish, and he is going to be talking about what he found in his book called Rural Rebellion how Nebraska became a Republican stronghold. And in it, he details the changes that have happened in his hometown, in his home state of Nebraska, and looking at it from the outside lens as someone who left there, went to bigger cities, more liberal areas, and seeing the difference of how his family and friends, who he keeps in contact with in a very rural area, live versus the people in his more urban his more urban friends I guess that you could say he interacts with much more on his daily basis and the different ways that these two groups of people approach problems and are approaching the political questions of the day and maybe even getting more and more entrenched in their positions on both sides of the political aisle and so he wanted to look into how these people on both sides are reacting to this but specifically what's happening in this area and he does a great job of telling the stories as well as telling the data or diving into rather the data as to what's going on to take the trends and the anecdotes together to see the full picture of what's happening. And I like that approach. And so as we discussed this, I mean, it was really enlightening and very interesting to hear how he's thinking about this topic. And while we may have some points of disagreement, it was a very great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I think Ross is really sharp and pointing out a lot of interesting things that we need to pay attention to so definitely check out this interview with ross and dive deeper into the political divisions that we are facing today as a country i think it's important to understand what's going on there and so i appreciate ross coming on and talking to me definitely pick up his book rural rural rebellion and his others as well on Amazon. You can check those out. They are not related to the politics side of things, but um, you can check those out as well if you find him. And before I dive over into the interview, I just want to remind you, if you're enjoying this, if you want to support what I'm doing, you can support it by following me on Twitter, following me on Facebook, just at Con of our Gen on Twitter or facebook.com slash conversation for our generation, liking, and following on, subscribing rather, on YouTube and on podcasts, making sure that if you're enjoying these interviews, if you're enjoying any of these episodes, subscribe, download the podcast, share it with other people, and leave a good rating and review. That's all three ways that you can keep up with the conversation of our generation and help me reach more people and get this, more people involved in the conversation, because I think the more people we have, the more perspectives we can bring in who are trying to seek truth together the better chance we have at really getting towards truth because we need more and more really bright minds coming together to solve these problems and tackling the different problems from different angles. And it's great to see that we have so many different people who've joined from architects like, you know, Frank Kuna and uh, Zach the Architect to artists like Amy Mastrini to the men, the guys over at the Vital Masculinity Podcast. They're doing great stuff and the ladies at the freed from feminism podcast talking about all sorts of different issues i mean we've had so many different interviews and discussions here as well as my own episodes where i dive deeper into what i'm talking about and if you want to help that just you know following subscribing all those things really help but if you really want to support it for five bucks a month you can support my work at conversationofourgenerationcom slash subscribe and doing that for just five bucks a month helps me move more towards independence on this stuff and keeps it so that I'm not reliant on you know, getting money from YouTube, getting money from Amazon if they kick me off on my book or whatever. I can be out there on my own delivering content, delivering value to you and continuing to bring that to you and being able to do more of it because if I can pull away from having to have a full-time job and make this my full-time job, there's more and more that I can do and I have so much that I want to do but don't have the time. And so I'd love to be able to dedicate more time to this and that requires being able to make income off it. So if you're able to subscribe five bucks a month, I really appreciate it. You get my book, you get my access to my Discord community and all my premium content, including the courses that are going on right now. So definitely check that out. And if you uh, if you want to support what I'm doing here at The Conversation of Generation. And so with that, Let's hop on over to the interview. And so today I'm joined on the Conversation of Our Generation by Ross Benish, the author of Rural Rebellion and several other books. Thanks for coming on today, Ross. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on, Nick. For sure, for sure. And so one thing, well, I guess before we dive into about your book, how about you tell people a little bit about yourself, what you've written in the past, what you worked on what you've worked on, and give them a little bit a little bit of a background.
1: Sure. So um, I'm from a town of 300 people called Brainerd, Nebraska, and I uh, lived there for the majority of my life before I went to school at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which was the closest um, public university to my place, and stayed there for about five years before I moved to Detroit to take an internship at Crane's Detroit Business. And then I moved to New York City to take an internship at Esquire Magazine, where I was the worst-dressed man to ever work there and after that internship i stayed in new york city and i i um wrote for a bunch of places freelance and otherwise and um i also wrote a few books uh the sex weirdopaedia and turned on that were um sex research books for general audiences and um i became market analyst i covered the ad industry which was something that i did as a reporter before and um I also spun out another book recently called "Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, which is a um, kind of a part memoir, part social science, part journalism look at how uh, Nebraska as a microcosm uh, reflected some of the political shifts that have rippled throughout the United States during the last 30 years of my lifetime.
0: Mm-hmm. I, li- I like the way you describe that as kind of part memoir, part social science, uh, part journalism. And, and coming from your kind of analytical background, I think it's good to discuss some of these political sociological issues from the data perspective, but also from being able to discuss specific stories like, you know, being able to talk about seeing people in your family or friends change views or change attitudes. Like you can have sort of those anecdotes that give a little bit more insight into the data and the trends at the macro level that we try to look at and analyze without knowing the individuals that are going into that.
1: Yeah. And that's definitely what what I tried to do because, you know, I uh, tend to be data centric. So if it was up to me, I would just write like a a book based on research, but it wouldn't be relatable for many people. Mm -hmm. And so um, to make it more relatable and less, esoteric. I I wanted to tell stories about how my own life experiences shape my viewpoints. Because it's one thing to cite a poll, but it's another to say, well, I view this thing differently now because of uh, this life event that happened. And I believe that has a more powerful effect for most readers. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I just think we... Want to act like we are just purely rational, but we do have kind of that storytelling. I mean, there's obviously a yearning for it with people like Jordan Peterson being big, you know, talking about those things, and we want to hear those. So, uh, as far as your book goes, what's I guess the main thesis, the main point that you're trying to make in it, from a high level?
1: Yeah. Well, so from just a high level, I'm trying to show how um, the middle of the country where I grew up in has gone to the right politically. In a way that makes their politics from the 1990s look liberal in comparison, which may seem silly to some people, but uh, it's a significant change. And I think a lot of people just see those areas and assume that Democrats were never competitive there. but That isn't the case. And I show how that changed happened. And um, I talk a lot about my hometown because this trend that I'm discussing was mostly driven by rural areas like the one where I grew up. And. I discuss in there how, you know, when I was in that small town, mm-hmm. um, a conservative viewpoint made more sense to me there than like mm-hmm. when I've, you know, lived in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to just describe everyone there as being uh, irrational for uh, having this um, political viewpoint and the state shifting that way. So I'm, I'm trying to empathize with the people I grew up with and show how this all took place.
0: Mm hmm. I like that. Yeah. And I think that it's good to try to understand both sides of it and how people might be moved one way or another uh, based on their circumstances. Because I do think that when you see, I guess one of the things that I see is that the cities kind of just make you more liberal in a way because of the way you live and the policy prescriptions that liberals tend to push versus when you're out on your own in a more rural area or a smaller town it's easy. It, the conservative lifestyle is really what you live at that point, And you want to be kind of left alone and not have people invading into your way of life as much. Whereas when you live in an apartment building, you kind of have to be a little bit more cognizant of the boundaries of liberty as well, because you're very quickly encroaching on someone else's. Um, but I think
1: those I, are good points. I, I mean, just being in a dense area, you have to Make do with communal living if you're gonna get by. Uh, when I was in a town of 300 people, I I did not have to do those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so, I guess, do you see this kind of shift uh, that you're noticing as a problem or just kind of a trend that we need to be aware of?
1: Well, I, I think there are things that are a problem with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I didn't mean to cut you off there, but no, you're fine. Um, um, so, what what I've seen is there's a pretty intense. Hatred of the government, like where I'm from, and I think in in a lot of rural towns in general. And, um, you know, you you see it now, like with stuff with COVID, like, you know, people not wanting to get vaccines or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, protesting uh, limits on indoor gatherings, you know, stuff like that. And I, I understand that the government can... Um, be unproductive at times and has made bad moves in the past and uh, can be overreaching, and that not uh, every regulation um, is a good thing and that there are trade offs. But um, what I've seen over my lifetime is an intensity in how much any small step of the government gets protested. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's 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 not just COVID. You know, you could see it with with guns or uh, healthcare stuff like that too. And I just don't think those uh, extreme uh, anti-government views actually help anyone. So um, I don't want to make it out like life is terrible in Nebraska or anything like that. But there's been an anger in the rural areas that really hasn't led to a productive politics. It just led to people, um, you know, hating taxes. Um, you know, hating <laughs> any initiative that the government may push, and some of those initiatives, I think, could actually benefit them. Not all of them, but you know, some of them uh, could be productive. So that's where I, I see it as a problem.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I, I come from a very kind of small L libertarian conservative family, and I would say I still am in the conservative libertarian worldview of things. But, and, and I, I get what you're saying though. I, I think that there's a lot of things that government does that are bad, <laughs> but I also don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And just cause I recognize that the radical, like we should just tell government to not do anything at all. All of a sudden would have serious problems uh, just unraveling that spool all at once. I think we just end up with a mess. So I don't want that. I want, but I do think that to kind of play devil's advocate What I see here in Indiana, which I don't think is too different uh, Mm -hmm. from Nebraska in a lot of ways, especially in the rural areas, is it's not as much the hatred for government, at least in my experience, as much as it is the anger at the wrong government doing it, right? We want, I think that the conservative idea that we should be looking to our local or state government first and federal government last for a solution to a problem has been just totally upended in our modern era. And so it's just like there's one little incident that happens here in this small town and all of a sudden we need a federal you know, mandate about this or something happens in California and we need a federal law that doesn't really apply to these more rural areas. And I, I think there's a pushback there that these coastal cities seem to have an outsized influence on things that really are going to affect a lot of the middle of the country in a very different way.
1: Well, local control is a um, historically um, conservative philosophy, and and a lot of times I think it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and helpful, and it allows governments to be adaptive to the uh, policy needs of its specific constituents. But in Nebraska, um, I don't believe that the Republican Party there really embraces those things despite professing to, and I'll give you an example, is the Omaha City Council Uh, wanted to pass a mask ordinance about a year ago to be proactive with COVID. And the Republican governor and attorneys general said they were going to sue the city if they did that. So, you know, local control would be the city doing what it wants to do. The state telling the city it can't do that is as bad as the federal government telling the state that it can't uh, do a thing that it (laughs) wants to to help its residents. So um, I I, I saw this um, reactionary republicanism take mm-hmm. root in nebraska that it, it doesn't you know necessarily hold the the values that um a lot of the conservatives i grew up with uh knew and professed it, it's just um you know something else altogether
0: mm-hmm. that's a good point and I, and I like that example i think there are times where you need to correct down a little bit from a state to a city or federal to state you know if you have serious issues but i do think if especially in that case where a pan- this pandemic was affecting, you know, your town of 300 people probably a lot differently than it was Omaha, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, those like, cause my family lives in a very rural town in Tennessee and we went there for a wedding last May and it was totally open. I mean, no one was wearing masks, but here in Indianapolis, it was a very, where I live, it's a very different issue because, we, and and I still think we went way overboard on many of the mandates that we had here. Um, but I do think that it is, very, it is very different in a city of a million people versus a town of a few thousand or a few hundred. And being able to adjust is good. And you shouldn't be cramming down from the top uh, one-size-fits-all program. The same way we shouldn't have let you know California's need or New York's need to change the way they do things to be crammed down on some of these other states in the middle of the country.
1: No, yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's fair. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I just think the parties, both parties have, um, taken it's, it's not just COVID. There's many things they've taken Mm -hmm. hard positions on when or where they don't, they want to enforce something and they don't, um, they're not consistent
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, I agree with that. I think that there is a, it's really hard to find a solid liberal or conservative position in either the Democrat or Republican party. There is, there's just a lot of, I think very, you have the kind of liberal to very progressive Democrats or you have the very conservative to kind of liberal Republicans who probably would fall into a Democrat party 15, 20 years ago, like Mitt Romney. And it's, it doesn't really, it's hard to find those lines in the parties themselves.
1: It is. And um, as the parties have become um, more different from each other and, and kind of gone off in their each direction with, you know, one going left, one going right, um, that's contributed to um, what's happened in the middle of the country of um, Democrats becoming less competitive, which mm-hmm. I, you know, document in the book in a specific period for a specific place. But I mean, I think the results are generalizable to more areas.
0: Mm hmm. Yep, no, I've definitely noticed it here in Indiana. I mean, Obama won his first term here, and I believe he lost the second time around tightly. But then the last two years, I mean, it was, I think, very solidly yeah. Trump. You know, very very wide. Like we were caught one of the first states called, I'm pretty sure, in 2020, um, far before Arizona was.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, you're the state of uh, Mike Pence. You know, not not
0: Barack Obama. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and so. So I, I guess what would you say is sort of influencing – there's kind of, I think, a divide happening between the mm-hmm. urban and the rural parts. Because I've noticed here in Indianapolis we've gotten more liberal, actually, as a city, but the rural areas have gotten more conservative. Have you noticed that in, in your book in Nebraska?
1: Um, well, I, I would say Lincoln's gotten more liberal, the second largest city. Mm-hmm. Omaha, you know, it's more liberal than the rest of the state, but yeah. it's still not – Widely liberal. I mean, the mayor is Republican, and I think she's going to win re-election this year. And uh, the Congress representative from that area is also Republican. Now, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden did win Omaha, but no local Democrat has won um, citywide or in that district um, for a while. There's there's been one exception in 2014 um, where a congressperson did. But yeah, it's not um, the bastion of progressivism that you may see in some other uh, large cities. Throughout the Midwest, which is you know part of the reason why Nebraska, um, you know, veer so far to the right because they don't have the offset from the cities like some other areas do. But um, you asked like, what's um, you know furthering this divide? I'll just kind of go back to something I said earlier with um, how the perception of government is different in rural areas, um, and I just think like in, in a rural area, um, you know, you've seen if, just over the last like thirty years, you've seen your town probably declined in population and your schools may have shuttered and you may uh, be sending your kids to a consolidated school now. And when your kids graduate, like me, uh, they leave the state. And um, when that happens and you see the cities in your state, as well as those on the coast, prospering, um, it's easy to view that the government isn't really there to do anything in your interest Mm -hmm. um, because that's just not like your perception of the world. And you're in an area where... um, you're used to kind of doing what you please and self governing, and, self-governing and um, you know everyone. And it, it's easy to um, view any sort of government program as an intrusion through that lens. And um, now I don't believe Republicans are actually going to necessarily shrink the federal government because they, um, tend to have terrible deficits lately whenever they're in administration. Yeah. but they, they campaign on being a fiscal conservative, you know, even yeah. if they may not, not hold it up and that, that resonates well mm-hmm. out there. Uh, whereas, uh, Democrats, I, b- I believe a lot of their programs, um, they, they tend to be about increasing the, the scope of government, you know, affordable care act or, or green mm-hmm. new deal. And, um, out in those areas, even if the stain is supposed to allegedly benefit you, a lot of skepticism that it's going to do such. And um, I think that's part of the reason why you've seen uh, uh, people in those areas leave the Democratic
0: Party. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And, and I think that it's not necessarily unwarranted to have the skepticism. I mean, a lot of the programs that have been, that were supposed to help farming communities and things like that have obviously failed because basically all of the farming gets consolidated small farms get bought up by big huge companies you know we have a federal government that allows monsanto to sue you when the you know seeds from their stuff like from their uh fields blow into yours and get planted and then you get sued out of existence by a giant organization giant multinational organization as a small farmer you can't fight those people and so i i do think that there have been a lot of people who have been forgotten by the federal government in favor of wall street and hollywood yeah in a lot of ways and you know,
1: if you think about a lot of the businesses that were popular in the middle of the country some of those agribusinesses they um have slashed their employee benefits and uh, hammered down their unions where they barely don't even exist and now they hire out foreign labor and you know those A lot of those workers back in the day when they were union members and they were on the packing plant, they were Democrats. But now Mm -hmm. that uh, that union doesn't exist, they don't have any benefits and uh, they don't believe that party was there to help them. And, you know, they've um, turned to Republicans while that uh, agribusiness has um, outsourced the labor.
0: Yeah. And I think that. They're warranted in saying that both Republicans and Democrats have turned their back on American labor in a lot of ways in the manufacturing industry. I mean, both of them Mm -hmm. have been happy to send all of our stuff over to China and all of our manufacturing to China, Vietnam, other countries where they can do this stuff with basically, I mean, almost basically slave labor. And you can't compete with that (laughs) in America with our, I mean, and you shouldn't be able to compete with slave labor, I don't think. (laughs) I think it's a good thing that we can't, but I I, I do think that, you know, maybe one bright spot could be that manufacturing does come back here because we realized after a pandemic that, Hey, maybe importing everything that we need or want is not the best long-term strategy. It might save me 10% on my iPhone this year, but when we need to produce PPE that's coming from like the same province where this giant pandemic just started from, you know, maybe that doesn't seem like the best manufacturing and logistics strategy.
1: Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, um, also, even if some manufacturing comes back, I, I don't think we can expect it to go um, back to it, its heights just due to technological yeah. um, innovation and fewer people needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, tr- trying to at least bring some of those jobs back, I, I think would have helped Democrats, but, you know, they, they kind of uh, bailed on that in the 90s.
0: Mm-hmm. They did. Yeah. I mean, in my wife's dad is in a steel, the steel union up in Northern Indiana. And that's an area that I would say is very similar to what you're describing. And I know I would say most people that are with him were big Trump guys. Like they would not have been Republican voting, you know, for a Bush. They would not have been voting for like maybe Reagan second term or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was, I mean, those are all people who for the most part were the Democrat stronghold in Indiana for sure was the Northwest like steel area. And just anecdotally, most of the guys that I know that work those that I meet of it, they my dad, my father-in-law's friends are Trump guys, you know, big Republican supporters now.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's been a big change in, in the Midwest. Um, uh, I I would say outside of a few States, Mm -hmm. most of that region has
0: drifted that way. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I guess what are some of the things affecting this? I mean, do you think that media has an effect on this sort of divide between the rural and uh, urban areas and sort of a backlash against government?
1: Yeah, I I, I do. So I do, I do believe so. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that are happening at the same time. So like if, If you say, um, you know, campaign finance deregulation or media source changes have affected this and you you list a few other variables, it sounds like you're kind of throwing everything at the kitchen sink. You have to remember this isn't a um, laboratory experiment. All these things did occur at the same time and they all do have an impact. So I I do believe that the changing media consumption patterns and also social media Mm -hmm. um, have had uh, a big effect. And, you know, it's it's really easy, though, to, to sit here and say, well, like, you know, Fox Radio became, I mean, Fox News became popular, or, or talk radio became popular, therefore it drug all these people to the right. You know, I like to ask, like, what was it about their messaging that resonated so much mm-hmm. because, you know, they they wouldn't have um, become popular in a vacuum, um, you know, so uh, you got to think about why, why is it that the message that those um, news organizations are selling Travels so well from the Mm -hmm. church pew to the high school football game to, you know, the, the barbershop in that town, the, 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 you know, the anti-government message, the, uh, you know, resentment against the so-called cultural elites that has found a very receptive audience Mm -hmm. out in those areas.
0: Yeah, it has. And and I think you have to also look at if, when there's a new part of the market encroaching, whenever there's an innovation in the market, you have to say, well, why did this innovation break through? And it's always because what was originally there became stale and was no longer serving the good of the consumer, right? Like the traditional media has had faltered in the last, I would say 20 years. It's a very different CNN that I see today than when they were reporting on 9-11 9-11 as when I was in first grade watching. Well,
1: there's also changes too in um, like how these uh, news sources are funded and regulated. Um, yeah. Like, you know, the, the stuff, some of this stuff didn't exist because the Ferris doctrine existed, you know, and the technology to distribute um, without as many uh, intermediaries wasn't around. So, um, you know, that, that definitely had an effect, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would say they, um, they found an audience that wasn't um, getting what it wanted out of, um, you know, the more traditional mm-hmm. outlets, um, which has been a, a sore spot for, um, you know, people in the media industry. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, as someone who's been in conservative circles my whole life, and I, I do know that even growing up, you just kind of feel like the mainstream media, CNN wasn't always like they are in the last five years or so, but very obviously hostile to a conservative opinion you know MSNBC and ABC and CBS were always kind of like that and it wasn't necessarily I don't know they they would do things like turning their nose up at conservatives and churchgoers and all that stuff and you know you can if you're come to get just straight the facts and really you get people turning their nose up at you as you come to watch their program you're going to want to look elsewhere and I think I think that there's a lot of blame to go around to everybody on why we're so divided. And I think we could, it's really tough because there's so many things moving at once to push this divide between kind of the, what we've seen over the last five years, especially, but I think a trend that probably was happening before. Yeah, no, uh, I, I,
1: I would agree with that. It's just, um, uh, Sorry, these church bells are going off. And <laughs> I heard
0: that in the background. I'm, try-
1: I'm yeah. trying to wait for them to.
0: <laughs> the song is long. You're good. Uh, but I guess I, I do think that one thing that might be changing that, and we, you kind of talk about the fact that you have the conservatives listening to the talk radio, you know, daily wire type podcasts versus your more liberal people listening to or watching CNN, listening to NPR I mean, do you think that just kind of the different focuses that those two different medias have could even sharpen the divide even more than it already might have been?
1: Yeah, I I believe so. Um, I I think the worst stuff, though, is what you get on Facebook and Twitter when it's not even Mm -hmm. um, a media organization that vets anything. It may be an anonymous person uh, who doesn't have to... Um, take any responsibility for what they say and they just push out ideas or push out attacks. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they go very well. They, or they push out um, false statements that, you know, they'll say this celebrity or this politician said a thing when they didn't mm-hmm. and that travels. And, and by the time um, the social media company flags it as false or it's been debunked on Snopes or something like that uh, it's too late. It's reached thousands of people who can't be convinced otherwise that what they saw wasn't real. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think the social media companies, particularly um, Facebook and Twitter, have been uh, more destructive for this divide, this media divide, than even those partisan news sources you Mm -hmm. have mentioned.
0: Yeah, and I think that, those the way that social media works has made both news organization, like news organizations on both sides have to change the way they do things. Cause I'm, I'm in marketing at a tech company as well. And I work, you know, with my podcast and everything and you have to be sensational. And so you can't just, you know, CNN can't just come out and say, X, Y, Z happened. It has to be, you know, that, but kind of maybe give that insight, but, stoke some anger on one side or the other you know play to something so that you click in and that seems to be and Fox has to do the same thing both sides of the political aisle are kind of like Fauci said this horrible thing you know Donald Trump said this horrible thing Mm -hmm. and and so that way it gets your people enraged and going into your site instead of saying you know here are the COVID numbers (laughs) that doesn't really give no one's just reporting the numbers. They're all saying you have CNN saying, Oh, the numbers are, you know, it doubled since yesterday and it's terrible. And then on the other side, Fox news is like, yeah, but the, you know, the masks don't work, whatever it is. In reality, you just need to see, Hey, maybe the numbers did double from yesterday, but we're down, you know, a thousand percent from last week. And that's why we had a big little spike because it's Monday and the weekend deaths come in on Monday, you know, and you can't just, take the numbers for what they are and read them as they are because no one's giving that to you.
1: Well, yeah, there's been uh, studies done by um, think tanks and by advertising research companies. Um, I think Pew may have had a study. I'd have, have to look up if, the, if they were the source um, for, for the one I'm about to mention. Um, that show though, they like the data, that neutral statements on Facebook don't get much engagement. And by engagement, they mean like click shares Mm -hmm. likes comments and um the extreme statements do so you're incentivized to take a stance whether Mm. the thing you're taking a stance on should have a stance or not and the more asinine your stance um the more widely your post will travel so that's why when you log on twitter you see people saying things like dog owners are white supremacists or you know some crazy (laughs) thing because it's just uh yeah it just like it's a competition for who can say the most ridiculous thing to to garner attention. And I think it's kind of rotting all our brains. I sound like a cranky old man, but it's (laughs) really not good for us. And, um, it only worsens this divide, uh, that we're talking about my Facebook feeds really strange because it's like kind of half like rural Nebraskan and half like, uh, Detroit and New York city people, um, (laughs) where I've lived. And, um, I mean, you—if you just scroll through my page for like ten minutes—I mean, you—you would swear there's like several different countries we're living in, like in in different realities. Not even just different countries, like like yeah, different realities. It's—it's—it's wild.
0: One of the biggest challenges facing our culture today is the porn problem, and that's why I'm proud to be working with Covenant Eyes to help nip this problem in the bud. So, if you struggle with porn, or if you want to protect your family from this issue, Covenant Eyes can help. Covenant Eyes is an accountability software that helps you create good habits when you're using your computer or other devices that are connected to the Internet. And so you can have this plan for yourself, for your whole family. And using my promo code of CONVO, when you go there, C-O-N-V-O, you will get your first 30 days free. So head on over to CovenantEyes.com And use the promo code CONVO, C-O-N-V-O, to get your first 30 days free. That way, you can start living a porn-free life for you and for your family. Now back to the conversation. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that that's definitely very true. I mean, And they want to feed something that's going to anger you or confirm your bias. And those are the two things that you get whenever you're on Facebook or Twitter. Because that's what you're likely to engage with. And I try to... I've almost, I think, trained Twitter to give me just beautiful things. <laughs> like I follow a <laughs> bunch of architecture accounts and art accounts and people who just like post like nice things to say like, Hey, you know, you should be, take care of yourself, take care of your family. And I feel like I get a lot of that.
1: Well, I do get a lot great. of the
0: politics stuff and, you know, dank memes and everything too. But
1: <laughs> I, um, I haven't been able to train my Twitter, but my YouTube has gotten much better when i log in the things that recommends are um college football highlights and videos of beagles those are like the top two things i can watch both of those all day and they don't um make me um you know suddenly angry at people for no reason so well unless if i'm watching nebraska lose like yeah uh the 2009 big 12
0: title game that would make me angry but most of the time uh, not so yeah exactly you know, I, I get that. And and that's the thing is there's so much stuff that could just be a political entertainment, but it seems like we, we've kind of infested everything with it. And that's what the reaction is. I think that's why there's such a strong reaction against, especially in conservative circles, because the culture itself, you know, the entertainment industry, the everything that comes out of D.C., everything that comes out of all those places seems to be left of center if not way left of center in some cases. And so- when I you would say agree- on social issues, that is the case. Yes.
1: But a lot of those organizations then will try to work through the back door, especially if Republicans are office and say, hey, can you get us a tax cut?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. Everyone is still, tr- yeah. Everyone's still a big capitalist at heart. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But but I do think that, but the social issues are really the ones that are thrown in your face the most, right? No one- I, there are people who might get a little bit hyped up over tax rates, but it's the, you know, it's the mass debates, it's transgender or gay marriage and things like that, that are really hot button issues because they go to your, you know, my tax belief, my beliefs on taxes are kind of like a really high level thing. My beliefs on what marriage is or, you know, what those things are, those are very core to the most ideally uh, held beliefs if, if, as a religious person, Right those are the most core things that feel like you get thrown at you all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does feel like um, when you get online in the morning, um, there's some organization that like has to take a stance on something that isn't um, related at all to like their core competency of
0: what they produce. So, you know, like, (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, i'm I, waiting for coca-cola to like say we're done with new coke that was bad but now we have gay coke and <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far but... <laughs> no i know but it's it just but they seem to have a very big need to hop on whatever the social issue is of the day
1: yeah and you know and there's there's some conservative equivalents not as many though mm-hmm. you know like like the my pillow guy or mm-hmm. the um yeah That coffee company—I can't think of the name of it right now—but
0: yeah, I would say they're—they're,
1: you know, in the minority statistically. Um, It just, you know, whatever organization or company um, has to take a stance on everything, and then it becomes the cycle for a day before we all forget. I just find it all very exhausting. I guess (laughs) Um, even even if they take a stance, I agree with. I just um, Mm -hmm. I tend to wish that i could just ignore these organizations
0: yeah exactly it's like just sell me a cup of coffee you know sell me a meal i don't need to know whether or not you think the all-star game should be played in georgia or what you think about voting rights laws because guess what i don't come to the you know generally big multinational corporations don't have the best track record for Yeah, ethics. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's why, you know, when,
1: when Nike does something,
0: you know, you have to think about their labor laws. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you use slaves to build your product before. So eh, I don't know how I trust on what you have to say about things, but no, I, I agree. And I think, I just wish that you could go and buy something that was apolitical and that we kept our politics to the political discussions and it wasn't just everything. And I think that that's what a lot of people are reacting against in a big way.
1: Yeah. Well, something that I think has been a mistake in the past is um, treating corporations like they're people uh, that they have unlimited, you know, political speech. Um, you know, that's allowed them to be more active politically. A lot of times behind the scenes um, with um, donations to candidates that aren't disclosed. But mm-hmm. um, I think we've just given them too many rights over the years uh, to, you know, they're not, they're not held accountable the same way people are, but yet they get a lot of the benefits mm-hmm. that an individual should have. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's not that way in all countries. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the, the corporations have, um, had a corrosive effect on our politics, um, in a way that hasn't benefited most people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It, it seems like as we've opened up, like the ability to, <laughs> At the same time that we made donating to campaigns easier, in some ways, we've made it much harder for the small donor, or like the person who's a well-paid doctor to say, I want to put $5,000 towards some campaign. Well, you can't because there's a, you know, a $3,500 limit and anything above that you have to. And, and so it's like the, the very little guy who wants to give $100 to his favorite politician can, no problem. The big corporation that wants to give a million dollars to a super PAC can, no problem. But those other people in between, you know, I I don't know. I I think that there's, I don't know. I I don't know where I stand on the corporations as people thing. I think there's some things that it's good for, but I do think that they get to play both sides of the fence a lot. And I'm always wary of big organizations, whether it's big government or big business.
1: Well, a lot of them tend to donate to um, like each party in a general election. So they can like, try to get a favor, you know, no matter um which company wins mm-hmm. uh, or which or which um party wins. And I yeah. guess that can make them appear neutral, but I mean if they wanted to be neutral, they just wouldn't give to yeah. the candidate at all. I mean they could go give to a nonprofit that's going to do good in the world. Um but um yeah they 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 um they play both sides so that they always win
0: just like um Mac and always sunny in Philadelphia does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, I guess uh, we're kind of getting closer to the end here. Uh, What are some of the potential fallouts? I mean, we've talked about some, but Uh there's some fallouts of this trend that uh, you see that we haven't discussed yet. Well, so
1: I'll talk about this from Nebraska, but some fallouts I've seen when the distrust of government gets ramped up real high is um, less support of public education and kind of treating Education as this wedge issue, especially higher education, but but even some cases in um, K through twelve, and um, you know I saw some fallout when you know the, the post office came under attack, um, particularly under President Trump, which post office uh, for most small towns is a great part of the small town. Like in my hometown, we've had so many things close over the years, and FedEx and UPS aren't going to like service us at a reasonable rate because we're way out of the way. Mm-hmm. Post office allows cheap chip sheep cheap shipping and um it's also a place where like people congregate like my my mom my mom talks to the postmaster for like a half hour every time she like mails a letter that may be a little atypical but people love the postmaster like in Mm -hmm. in a small town so i think um you know coming after it is um harmful for them um the nebraska state legislature became so partisan in recent years so divided down party lines even though it's technically the nation's only non-partisan legislature that it became non-functional. And they, instead of like passing new laws, they spent a month debating filibuster rules a few (laughs) years ago. So it just, it just isn't efficient government.
0: Um, They were filibustering the filibuster. It sounds like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was, they were debating like over how many senators are needed to break a filibuster and like, the republicans wanted to lower it because they had majority control but not enough to like break the filibuster right. under the old yeah. rule. So like this went back and forth on this like forever on a loop and some other procedural things. But so you know you have a 60-day session to pass some laws, to adapt to a changing society and you spend like the first half of it arguing over procedures. Uh, it's um it's a little little maddening. So um I know I've already had on this point before, though, but so I, I get that not all government is good and um, mm-hmm. sometimes less of it is better. But um, the downfall I would see of like states like Nebraska going really far right is that um, it coincides with less support of institutions that um, sometimes, you know, actually support the public. Like like, mm-hmm. like I would say, you know, public education, the post office and um, our state legislature, historically, at least.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's inter- that's an interesting point. I yeah, I have I mean, I don't know how it is there, but I, in Indianapolis at least, our what we spend on public education for what we get, you know I, I guess I I think that there are serious problems and I think what happens a lot, especially with when it goes back to that state legislature thing that you were talking about, is, We're very good at getting the wrong things done as a government and not getting the right things done. Like if we need real education reform, we're like, well, let's just spend more money on it instead of saying, hmm, why is it that when we just throw money at these schools more and more every year that we get worse and worse results? Maybe we should actually take a look at what's happening there. You know, that's to me where I get very frustrated is the only bipartisan agreement is spend more. (laughs) yeah that's why
1: there's no fiscal conservatives once they're in (laughs) office budget deficit just keeps rising um for god knows how long
0: yeah and so and so it's like that's the only thing that we seems like it seems like politicians can agree on is we need to spend more money and we do have real problems and i think that there's you know i'm willing to say that there are maybe things that the government has to help us with or could help with but The solutions that are proposed are always just like, how the heck did we get to this as a potential solution for the problem that we're supposed to be discussing? Like, you know, when someone breaks gun laws, like seven different gun laws in order to obtain a gun that they use in a mass shooting, it's like, well, how would, you know, another gun law prevent this? Maybe we should look at the fact that the person was mentally ill and figure out how do we treat mental illness better? But that's not the discussion that we have. And we also have
1: a lot of things on the books too that we um we just put there that we don't like enforce with any yeah. little teeth.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And like maybe yeah, we're worry about actually enforcing some of those things or getting paperwork around where there was in my podcast that just came out on Tuesday an example of someone who was you know in the military or, or something along those lines dishonorably discharged should have been banned from getting a gun, but. The military, you know, he was court-martialed, and so he's basically in at the felon level. But the military just didn't communicate with the ATF or whatever it is. It's like how did that not happen?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that reminds me. There was a terrible tragedy in um, in Omaha several years ago, where um, uh, an, an undocumented laborer, legal immigrant, whichever term you know, mm-hmm. people use, um, ran over. He was drunk driving and killed this lady and um he there were several reasons why um he should have been stopped like the courts and law enforcement had that he had several um he had had a rap sheet and Mm -hmm. um if those um bureaucratic mistakes didn't happen um he wouldn't have been free and so you know this Mm -hmm. girl got killed and then um, he remains at large he he fled the scene and was um never caught Mm -hmm. so um it, it was terrible tragedy that woman Last life is also terrible because it was used to um demonize immigrants by some people and then um others um you know would say we need um you know more reforms because you know this guy didn't um uh you know he should have been able to come here and um you know then that would affect other people who are here already who aren't committing any issues but the issue was that there already were rules in place and yeah. if they were followed um yeah. You wouldn't have to restrict people from coming here, or send people here or here back. This this guy just was an individual who would have been uh, locked away for other things that went mm-hmm. through. So um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of glossing over the complexities of it, but because yeah. uh, you, you could do a whole podcast on that one case, but um, there were it was just frustrating because the, there were ready penalties that existed that would have prevented the thing if they were properly enforced.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's, that's to me, what is bothersome is we have to lay on another thing that we're not going to enforce that when it is enforced, a lot of times has harmful effects on people that are innocent of whatever is going on. Right. It has a lot of externalities because when you mess with the system at the federal level, it's just, there's so many complexities that it's hard to see, foresee all of the possible externalities that you might be touching on and messing up in the process.
1: Yeah. It could be a lot of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. If you uh, make a law to restrict something based on this one case, um, you know, without considering what could have been done with the existing framework. Sometimes nothing can be done and there is, you know, you do need a revamp, but um, Mm -hmm. too many times um, there are uh, existing things that could have been done that weren't.
0: Yep. Exactly. And so what are some of the solutions if we want to kind of counteract this polarizing trend? You know, how can we move towards a more unified country on both sides? I think both conservatives and liberals, Republicans, Democrats, however you want to say it. Both of them could do give a little bit in order to kind of come back together somewhat. Yeah, well,
1: um, you know, both parties have become more extreme in the candidates that they nominate from their primary so i think first off just re- reforming the way we we do primaries to, so like uh, things that have worked in nebraska um to produce more reasonable candidates who aren't so uh, dogmatic about things are uh, having open primaries so in an open primary you might get a republican versus a republican at the end or a democrat versus a democrat because the top two advance and you can vote for any candidate but you tend to get people who can compromise and appeal to a lot of people instead of just those in their, um, you know, party's primary voting system. So Mm -hmm. that, um, definitely has an effect. Ranked choice voting would be another, um, now it also Mm -hmm. gives third party candidates more ability to run seriously because there wouldn't be as much penalty of like penalizing the person who you're more similar to. And it'd be more incentive to get second place votes from someone you're Mm -hmm. similar to. So I think ranked choice voting for anyone who, um, you know, maybe, um, from a third party that isn't you know just republican or democrat that's something to give a serious look at um and i, I really believe having more elections at a non-partisan level is beneficial so nebraska is the only state in the country that has a non-partisan legislature and even though it's become more partisan in recent years it's not as dysfunctional as you may see like in kansas or, or iowa and i believe that's because the party labels aren't officially on there and yeah. people just vote they don't have like a majority whip or a majority leader um mm-hmm. and i get that at the federal level that would never happen and, and isn't realistic but like there's just things like like a county commissioner or, or a sheriff does that really have to have a party tethered yeah. to it like wh- whatever that person does in that job doesn't really have to affect like doesn't have to really you know uh be beholden to whatever the national party of that person wants like it's, mm-hmm. their job is a very local driven so um those are things that i i think would help those are more reformed things and behavior things um i also believe some moderation on social media would help and i don't when i say moderation on social media people mean a lot of things by that but like i i I don't want just everyone to be banned what i'm talking about is you shouldn't have unverified people be able to say whatever like you know anonymous people bots (laughs) if you had every person on twitter have to be um you know uh, Nick Jamel or Ross Spanish and your name is tethered to what you say. Um, I think you would see a lot different interaction on there because you, what happens is a lot of times you get an anonymous person who you have no idea who they are, says the most crazy thing. And they get a real person to react to that and it amplifies it. And Mm -hmm. if you just had all real humans, I think they would talk a little bit more on there like real humans do and, and not be so, um, like have so much animosity yeah all the time um
0: and i think that would help um i i think definitely verifying identity like i mean <laughs> i mean now the voter id things have become a hot topic but i think that you need an id to do just about everything and it's like could you have a way to say if you're going to be on twitter or facebook they just require ids uh, your know, parlor did to get verified i mean and- it can't
1: even just be like yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a government ID. I mean, there's ways yeah. to verify through phone. Ma- oh, I mean, I know people would try to exactly. game it, but, it, and, and you would never end that, but you could cut a lot of the yes t- worse stuff off there.
0: If, if you, you know, Oh yeah. I, um, ha-
1: made people accountable for what they say on there.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the funny thing is the bots also feed a lot of the polarizing things because they're there's polar opposites on the bots. Like they, oh, yeah. of, they're just there to create, like, I've had a couple of tweets that go viral And I start to, the first time it happened, I started to reply to things. I'm like, why the hell? And I look in and I'm like, why the hell am I replying to this? Like anime character with seven followers. That's writing four different languages, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like what, what am I doing? And so I learned my lesson there because I hadn't, I was not a big account. So I didn't attract that kind of like random stuff, but, and I'm still not a very big account, but so I can't imagine what people with a million followers have to deal with, but I see that every now and then where something just strikes a chord and like bots just hop on it. I'm like, what is going on here? And it it amplifies me, but it also amplifies those other, uh, gets the bots to get other people to react to them as well. And as long
1: as one person reacts, it can
0: um, go forever. create
1: a chain. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it it just, um, it's just, it does, it's just pointlessly um, divisive. So I, I, you know, that Another thing I would say just from a behavioral standpoint and I'm, I'm guilty right now. I'm on social media way too much, um, especially promoting this book. Um, I I hope to take a detox once I'm like done with book promotion. But um, one of the main ideas of my book is just that like people who you disagree with aren't necessarily irrational because they have a different opinion from you. They may be just reinforced differently because they live in an environment that's way different than yours to come. And that leads them to a different conclusion. I mean, I've, I've seen how my own views have been shaped by living in, town of 300 people in the middle of the country and a city of 8 million people mm-hmm. on the East coast. So I just think, you know, the more we can realize that and have uh, our perceptions based less on our online personas and, and more on like, you know, someone's actual experience, you know, the better our you know country looks, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I agree. I, I I think that that is a huge reason why in the last 20 years, things have gotten so polarized they There was obviously problems before, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were plenty of problems, of uh, polarization or, you know, the parties, but really the last 20 years has amplified that. And I think it's because social media, the internet has really made it to where instead of worrying about your neighbor and worrying about your community, you're worried about what some city 700 miles away is doing, you know, some injustice 700 miles away that you can't, don't really have any control over, except for to yell about on Twitter. And if we can kind of just, I think, bring it back home a little bit and focus on where we are, we can really do things that improve our communities and improve our lives. And by focusing locally, by focusing on our families, most first and ourselves first and foremost,
1: Yeah. The nationalization of politics hasn't um, been good for anyone except for maybe the, you know, people who are working in politics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The politicians and the bureaucrats in DC, it's worked out great for them and the companies that donate to them, but everyone else has kind of been bad. (laughs) And, and and you mentioned too, just kind of the nonpartisan aspect of, you know, the Nebraska legislature. I find that the Republican party here in Indiana or in Indianapolis or the Democrat party in Indianapolis and Indiana is not the Democrat party or the Republican party that you see in Washington DC either. Like we, there's kind of, I mean, there are governors and people who kind of imitate your national stage politicians, but really the policies and the way that we go about things here in Indiana, I mean, we're budget, you know, we have a clean budget every year. We don't go into deficits. It's against our state constitution at this point. So like there is actually, I don't know, a a bit of a different, I, I at least in my view a very different party system here locally than there is at the national stage.
1: Well, that's good. I I would say in our state, it's become much more similar to the national Mm. party, which I think, you know, just makes it less efficient. Um, for you know the people in Nebraska there's this book called the nationalization or it's called um increasingly United States um, by Daniel Hopkins it's all about nationalized politics and he says in there that like just as you can get a egg McMuffin from any McDonald's in the world you know you, you can get the same Democratic party in Nebraska that you'll get like in, in California and uh, it's not you know it's not quite that bad yet but um, yeah I, I've seen it go more in that direction in the last 10 years. So that's that's good that um you say yeah. Indiana um is a holdout on that trend because that that trend has swallowed a lot of other state parties especially when you look at their platforms. They don't um mm-hmm. they tend to have a lot of the same language from state to state which um you know wouldn't have happened years ago. Mhm.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it, maybe it's like uh when you get an egg muffin here versus like or a hamburger here from McDonald's versus like in the UK where they don't give you catch up with it automatically. You know, it's, it's still a little different. Yeah. Not, <laughs> but not that different. Um, well, great. Well, I guess, you know, we're kind of at time here. So I, and I want to be respectful. I know it's probably getting close to dinner time for you. So uh, are there any last pieces of advice uh, on maybe counteracting the trend that you think you wanted to share or um,
1: gosh, I wish I was good at giving advice, uh, <laughs> even worse at following it than, than, yeah. than I am at giving it. Um, no, I, I think we, we, we cover, um, about everything. I, I, I just, you know, I'm trying to bring attention to how, um, politics in areas like my hometown have changed, but you know, another thing I, I try to do too is show how you know all these people are so much more than their votes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still really, um, good friends with all my um, Republican and conservative, uh, like hometown friends and family members that I grew up with, even though I become more liberal and I live in New York city, which is like Sodom and Gomorrah to them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if we view everyone as a binary choice on a ballot, it's a pretty boring life. And I think yeah. you discount a lot of good people and you make friends with a lot of bad people. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, you have to realize that someone's, political persuasion is just one aspect of their personality, which may be frustrating and hard to deal with when, you know, emotional election happens. That doesn't go your way, but I think it's the way to go about. Otherwise you end up alienating a lot of good people who, um, you know, may be able to help you out in your life. Otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just don't talk to them for three weeks in November. And then after that, it's fine. (laughs) Every four years. (laughs) Exactly. No. Well, that's great. I think that's, a huge piece of advice that I talk about a lot here is just rising above the partisanship and talking about the ideas themselves. And I think that's great. Well, um, where can people find out more about you if they're interested? Sure thing. So, so my website is just uh,
1: rossbenish.com. Uh, get me, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just mm-hmm. at Ross Benish. And uh, my book is Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And it's basically sold on any digital online, uh, bookshop. So you go to bookshop.org and go to Amazon, but, um, hopefully you find somewhere else to buy it. Like, uh, your local bookstore.
0: Yep. Yep. That's great. Well, I'll have links in the show notes to your Twitter profile and all of that and where they can find the book. And so thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation.
1: Hey, I, I really liked it too. Thanks for having me on
0: and that wraps up the interview for today. I really appreciate Ross coming on and discussing this with me. I think it was a great episode. A lot of a lot of learnings there and I really am glad that he did this work, did this investigation both to the into the data and into the stories of these people and making both of those things relate. And so definitely go check out his book, Rural Rebellion: How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. There's a link in the show notes. If you buy through there, you help Ross out because he gets the sale and you help me out because by referring people over to Amazon, that's part of the way that I make a little bit of extra money with this. So definitely buy through the links in the show notes, help both of us out. We really appreciate that and keep on subscribing to the YouTube channel, the podcast, following me on Twitter, Facebook, all of those things, and leave a good rating review on the podcast today. That would really help just get it further out there and get more people able to find this because that's what boosts it up in the algorithms. That's how these places work. So by doing that, you really help me out, help other people find this. If you're enjoying this show and you think other people will, those little things will help get more people involved in, not involved, but get more people listening to the show and checking it out. And if you enjoy it, I'm sure there's other people who will as well. So definitely do that and make sure that You go to conversationforgeneration.com slash subscribe if you want to subscribe, get some access to extra premium content, my book, and other, and the Discord community as well. So that way we can be continually building up this community around the conversation for our generation where we can have these discussions and the Discord community is great for that right now. I mean, it's so much fun to see the discussions. Sometimes I'm in there hopping in, lots of times there's people just going back and forth having good chats, longer form chats that aren't little one-off hit-and-run type I won the argument stuff that you see on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. No, it's really good substantive conversation, and I really enjoy seeing that happen. So glad that I could be part of it, glad that I could help make that happen, but I'm really glad that there's people who are engaging with these ideas in a real and meaningful way and that's nothing. That's nothing that I'm doing. That's people out there who just want to do it, and I'm helping them find the place to do it. So they're the spri- they're the bright ones doing all of that, all of the heavy lifting in the Discord channel. So shout out to you know Stephen Sawyer at the Vital Masculinity Podcast. I see Michael Sharon in there quite a bit. Ben Gettys in there all the time. Um, so and others as well. So definitely keep it up, all you guys. And if you're interested in being able to get in on that, definitely go to conversationforgeneration.com slash subscribe for that. And last thing before I sign off here, I just want to remind you, if you want to get in the mailbag, shoot me a question, you can go to conversationforgeneration.com slash contact and message me one there. You can hit me up on Twitter and just tweet me the question at me and I'll find it and get that for you. Or uh, you can DM it to me as well on Twitter and I will get those because I'm planning on doing a mailbag episode here soon I saw questions coming in from several people on Twitter so I'm excited but I'd like to have a couple more so definitely do that I'll be posting out uh, some more shout outs to get people to submit their questions but I wanted to mention it here as well so if you're interested definitely do that and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the conversation for our generation let's get the dialogue going I'll talk to you next time